Picture this. You finished your first book and nailed it. The plot, the characters, all the twists and turns. This one's a winner, and all you need is the right cover. If you've got my art skills, this is the part where panic usually sets in. Enter the cover villain, hero to writers everywhere. Founded by noted author Remy Flagg, Cover Villain focuses on composite image covers for science fiction and fantasy writers. Give them the details, and they'll craft a cover using popular trends that everyone will want to see. But wait, you say, I've got ideas of my own. No problem, as Cover Villain loves a good collaboration. As they say, our goal is to put a little villain in every cover we make. Want to know more? Then head to CoverVillain.com and follow them on Facebook and Instagram. Hey, what's up, everyone? You're back with Citywide Blackout, your home for music, movies, and more. I am your host, Max Bowen. Well, this episode is a bit of a history lesson, as my guest, author Galia Gishon, talks about her new book, The Accidental Suffragist. Now, this is a work of fiction, but it takes place in 1911, during the women's suffrage movement, and focuses on Helen Fox, who goes from factory worker living in New York to being a member of the movement and soon working alongside some famous activists. We talk about how this subject came to Galia's attention and all the research she had to do. We learn about Helen Fox, what motivates her to join the movement, and how she changes as a person over the course of the book. You know, how would you pitch a book like this? Because the subject is pretty specific. And I think unless folks had a genuine interest in this particular movement, they might not be inclined to like check it out. Well, such a great question, Max. So I would say I'm going to answer this in many different facets. Number one, it's a fiction novel. So it is historical. It is based on a specific time in history. But it is a fictional novel that is entertaining. So I truly hope that, number one, you're going to read this because you want to be entertained. Why do you read? Most of us is to be entertained. I'm an avid reader. I love reading fiction. I read a few books a month. So that is my goal is to entertain the reader like I would want to be entertained. So that's number one. <laughs> and then, two, the, it's specifically historical fiction, which is, again, a huge genre. And so I think that most people who would read this book would want to read in that vein where it's you want to be entertained, you want to learn something, you love that you're reading something, literally, like people would read this and say, I can't believe this is true because I made it come to life. So number two, historical fiction. And then three, and I don't know if the listeners here, but there's definitely an element of women's rights and feminism here that um, on one hand, this was a hundred years ago, but on the other hand, you read this and you think, wow, this isn't that different. I can't believe we're still going through this. And not even women's rights, but now with voters' rights and things like that. So I think it touches upon some really key issues that are dear to people's hearts right now. Okay. That's something that I was also um, uh, curious about is, do we see any elements of uh, the suffragist movement echoed in the other uh, protests today? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, it's interesting. I'm, I have a day job. I'm not a political activist. I'm not, I've not been involved in government or politics. I'm very conscious, but it's actually not been something that I've ever considered my mandate. I'm really, I've definitely been more into women's rights. And, um, but really, I, I work in finance and I teach finance. Um, so that, that's sort of my day job. But what I found that while I was researching this and while the book came out, literally last year, 
as I was going through the election, you know, I literally just my, and I have teenage daughters and one of my teenage daughters is very politically active. And she said, mom, let's write postcards. I was like, okay. And I'm thinking, what is that going to do? Next thing you know, every night we're writing, you know, hundreds of postcards and most of our postcards were for Georgia and North Carolina and South Carolina because of what they had done in the polls down there. Um, and they had suppressed a lot of voters. And I, I myself, I didn't know any of this. So here I'm learning this from my 17 year old daughter. And so voters' rights are still, still at stake today. So while it's not necessarily gender focused, it's more racially focused or maybe um, like just really, you know, demographic or just or even income focused. Like it is really an issue that people's rights are being taken away from them. Were you able to incorporate anything that you've been seeing recently into the book, whether it was like characters or scenes or messages? Yes and no. I think what was interesting, probably one of the biggest surprises that came about back then is that women had to get their husband's permission for anything. So at one point, there's some really big marches in Washington, and my characters live in New York, and all the characters, regardless if they were poor or rich, had to get their husband's permission to go. And so I had one character who chose not to get married so she wouldn't, so she could have independence. I don't know if that really happened. That was where I take liberty. So that was something that I did today where I think people are choosing independence so they can make their own choices. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of it's kind of interesting you mentioned that because um, we have seen the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban. And among the changes that we've seen are that, are that wives can no longer leave their homes unless they're in the presence of a man. So we're seeing something from 100 years ago is still happening today in some countries. Yeah, women were. Not, I, it's, I read the news today. Women are not in the street. Literally, there's not one woman on the street. And also, women are taken up. Children are taken up school. No, I mean that's that's a travesty. What's going on there um, in terms of women and, and just how people are being treated? So that was the other thing is that the the rights. You know, the my book starts out with a tragedy, which is the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, and that was a factory fire that literally over a hundred girls ages 12 on just girls died in a fire. And again, that was something that I actually, I knew about and I was fascinated by that story as a young child, as a teenager, but I was surprised how many people don't know that story. And that story actually affected the labor movement and fair trade practices in the United States So again, talk about something that's relevant in the United States. We take for granted that all factory workers get paid living wages. But obviously, if you buy things like Made in China or in the South America, like they're not. So there's a lot in the book that comes about that you realize like this is how this came about. But again, the main character is someone that I made up. She's totally fictional. And you're rooting for her. You really are rooting for her. She's got a lot of obstacles and a lot of challenges and a lot of hoops to jump through. And you're like, is she going to make it? I hope she makes it. And just things that go through with her. <laughs> okay. okay. So let's dive into the story. So, and uh, Helen Fox is a factory worker living in New York's tenements. Following this, she is sort of seduced into the cause of her of women's uh, suffrage. How did you create the character of Helen? Who is she? So when I, and again, I consider myself educated, well-read, I knew barely any of the facts here. It's not taught in schools. It's not really in a lot of books. You know, as I started the research process, I couldn't believe how much was there, but it's really not something that is so fairly well-known. 
But one of the things that came up is that most of the suffragists were wealthy women. And if you think about it, it makes sense because who else really has the time to volunteer and march and do these rallies? The wealthy women, because they had someone else cleaning their house, they had somebody else cooking for them, they had someone else watching their children. So really the poor women couldn't do it because they were working. Most of these women were either domestic help or they were working in the factories. And so Helen, I wanted, I didn't want to tell the story of another wealthy woman doing this. I thought it's a big deal, but it's kind of boring. It doesn't really. Um, so when I thought about, okay, well, I really want to tell it from the eyes of someone who's different, who wouldn't necessarily have been there. So poor woman, that's really how I came up with Helen Fox. But then I thought, well, how does she get there? Because she can't work there. She needs to work. And so what happens is I start with that she really, um, her daughter works at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. The true part of it, well, so obviously Helen Fox was fictional, but a lot of the suffragettes were also labor union activists. So when the fire happened, a lot of them actually rushed to the fire because that was something that they were trying to change. They were trying to change the labor laws. And it's as simple as they kept saying, well, how can we change the labor laws if we can't vote for politicians who will change the laws? Okay. Because this was the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was a horrible thing. And that was probably the biggest example. But there were many other situations like this where people were being hurt in factories and there were no repercussions. So this really wasn't seen as a tragedy. It was just more like, oh, well, the factory is gone. We'll just build a new one. I think this was seen because 146 young immigrants died, young people died. That was probably the biggest, not probably, it was the biggest of, of that time. Yes, no, it, it absolutely was, I think, because the magnitude. But it was interesting, the owner of the factory, nothing happened to him. And he locked the doors. He had unsafe working conditions. That's really why the fire, that's why so many people died, because they felt like the girls were taking too many breaks, so they locked the doors so the girls couldn't take any breaks. Wow. It's hard to fathom, right? And so when there was a fire, they couldn't escape. Yeah. But it's like you said, though, it's it's still happening today. These right. factories with just like horrible conditions, uh, workers paid next to nothing. So once again, the thing that we saw uh, more than 100 years ago that we think is in the back, is in like the other review mirror, still happening today. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. So that's the thing that... And so one of the ways that I wrote this book is I actually wrote it in a writing workshop, which, by the way, I cannot recommend enough (laughs) for many reasons. But that was and I had I probably took three different classes with three different groups of people. And that was something that I kept hearing. Well, it's like, wow, that's not that different from today. Like, I don't remember the details, but there was a factory um, fire in Sri Lanka, I feel like maybe five years ago or a few years ago. And it was very, it was a similar story that a lot of people died. Um, So I think for a moment you're like, okay, now I won't buy anything clothing from Sri Lanka. But is that really the answer? I don't know. But at least here in the U.S., again, they weren't able to vote for the politicians that could actually pass the laws. Okay. So that was really how this came about initially. Gotcha. (laughs) Now, we talked a little bit earlier about what it was like for women at this time period. They couldn't leave their homes without their husbands. The only, the only way to be actually independent was to not marry. But what else, uh, what else defined women uh, at this uh, time period? 
So there's a scene where they go, and, and there were women, I think it was easier for wealthier women to go to college. And a lot of these women did go to college. And I would say a small percentage of them became professional. They became doctors, they became lawyers. Again, they weren't able to practice as easily and they weren't able to practice in hospitals. And at that time, very few of them were, they might have become a doctor, but then they weren't allowed to be actually, you know, practice in a hospital. Or if they were a lawyer, they weren't able to practice in a law firm. So they might help a little bit, but do very little. Most of them really could be writers and teachers. That was the main professions that they could do. And that was really how their voices could be heard. Okay. Let's talk about um, about Helen in the world of the suffragist movement. How does she adapt to this? Who uh, who are the folks that she meets? Well, so what's interesting is that right away, I put her alongside two of the biggest names. So I put her alongside the first person she meets is Harriet Stanton Blatch, who is a real person. And Harriet's mother was literally alongside Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Stanton. So Harriet is sort of at the tail end of her career. She's an older woman. She's a mentor. She's really looking to, she sees Helen as just like a young student, a young daughter, and she just wants to take her under her wing and protect her and help her. And she's very maternal and motherly to her and, you know, gives her money and wants to help her out and realizes that she has a job and she realizes that she has to work around her husband and how are you going to get around that? And Let me help you with that way. So that's an interesting dynamic. And she really bolsters Helen's confidence because from the get-go, Helen is not educated. She doesn't come from means. She almost has a little bit of the imposter syndrome, I would say, throughout the book, less towards the end. But she's constantly like, do I belong here? Am I really supposed to be here? That was a really big thing for her. And that's one of the ways that you see Helen change. Because towards the end, she is confident. She's a leader. She's really able to to set forth and, and not just be a worker within the suffragist movement, but she actually becomes a leader within the suffragist movement. And then the second person that I put alongside is Alice Paul, who, to be honest, a few years ago when they were talking about putting women on the $20 bill, she was one of the women that they were going to put on. So she is really the person who got the, the amendment passed, who got the 19th Amendment passed. So Alice Paul, but Alice Paul is not warm and fuzzy. She does not show hell on the ropes. She's a little bit like, you need to prove yourself. And frankly, it's the best thing that could have happened to Helen because it forces Helen to step up. It forces Helen to really learn it on her own. It forces Helen to like look through the Alice's, look through the encyclopedias. They get a phone. Let me figure out how to use the phone. Let me go out there. Alice told me to get 100 names. Let me get 200 names because she wants to impress Alice so badly. Okay. So those are the two main characters that I put Helen alongside, and they're very different relationships. How about um, just interacting with the other like members? Does uh, she feel like she's kind of found like a family here, or you know, it, it's it's interesting because she's kind of damned if she do, damned if she doesn't. If, you, if you'll excuse my language, because she never really fits in, to be honest. Because these women, again, they went home. Like, you know, there's a scene that I show where they're talking about the, the soup that their cook made, you know, or that they're talking about the delicious lamb chops they ate. And Helen's like, gosh, we don't have enough money for meat. So, you know, part of the research I did is I actually went to, I live near New York City and I went to the Tenement Museum there and I looked, you know, did a lot of research around that. And like, truthfully, they didn't have a lot of meat. They really had to, you know, they, they were not able to, they didn't, they 
they might have had enough food, but maybe not plenty of it. Or they really had to, you know, hunker under the blankets when it was cold. So um, those were things that obviously Helen is fictional, but really happened to people like her. So as a result, she never fully fits in with the wealthy suffragettes. But I show moments. Like, for example, they realize that Helen needs new clothing. So they actually give her some of their clothing, but not in a, in a, um, you know, like, oh, you're poor. Let me just help you out. I mean, they really want to help her. Um, the other thing is they actually talk about their relationships with their husbands. And it's interesting, even though Helen's poor and they're wealthy, they have similar issues with their relationships. They have to get permission from their husbands. They either decide to have more children or not to have more children or has the dynamic there. So they, they do have those kinds of conversations. Um, so I do show that interaction. And then towards the end, Helen is actually a leader within the organization and she has to manage or lead women. And you, you see her claiming her authority, which is very difficult. How so? Well, because they're like, the women are sitting around talking, sort of chit-chatting and she's like, come on, come on, I need your attention. And they're like, you know, ignoring her and she almost has to yell at them. So that's number one. Number two, she has to tell them what to do and be a manager. And initially she just keeps doing the work herself. So she's not acting like a leader. She's really acting like a worker bee, which is what she'd been for a few years. But she can't get everything done because towards the end it was so busy for them. They, you know, they were at the probably the last year or two before the amendment was being passed, there was quite a momentum. And so she has to start delegating the work. And she has to learn how to do that because a true leader delegates. Okay. And so she really had to learn how to be a leader from that perspective. Which just sounds like that's not really her strong suit. Um, not it, at it, first, at least. No, it wasn't at first, but it, it ends up, she ends up being a great leader. She really does. Yeah, and she's got, and at the end, and I don't want to give it too much away, but something happens that she has a huge, huge personal challenge, huge personal challenge. And um, I would say to some extent, she's actually in the same position as some of the other suffragettes. And they bond together as a result. They really do. Mm -hmm. I want to ask about the suffragist movement. Was this taken seriously or was it seen as, you know, get back to work, you're lucky we'll let you have jobs, that sort of stuff? Well, I think that there's a few reasons. There was that aspect that go back into the kitchen, go back home. You should just be at home having babies. That was number one. Um, I think, too, there was an aspect of fear because this was around the pre-prohibition era. And the, the men actually were afraid that if the women had the right to vote, they would vote for prohibition, which was not necessarily the case. If a man was going to vote for it, a woman would vote for it. It's really the, so, but they were afraid that the women were going to take away their alcohol. <laughs> so there was that aspect. Um, and then what was interesting, one of the things that I did, and I, this book is obviously just a regular book, but I loved looking at the cartoons from that time. And a lot of the cartoons were like fearing, make, putting fear into men. So the anti-suffragist movement said, men, if you vote for a woman to get the right to vote, this is going to be you. And you see a man holding a baby, you see a pot boiling in the background, and laundry sitting at his foot. And they're like, do you want that to be you? Oh, God forbid a man should be home helping to raise, to raise the kids. And yet, and yet uh, uh, house dads are a popular vocation these days. 
Yes, 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 exactly. <laughs> yes, the stay-at-home dad, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yes, absolutely. I want to also ask about how, how joining this movement could impact their lives. Like, were they risking, like, loss of jobs? Were they risking their lives? Were they risking, like, divorce or what have you? Would... Yeah, well, so a few things that I show is that initially she and her husband think about becoming labor union activists. And if they were found to do that, they would lose their job and they would not get another job and they really would have no money. And their backstory is that they used to live upstate in a farm and they really came to the city because they needed more money. Like kind of the classic, like leave the, the country for the city uh, migration. So that's number one. I think with the suffragettes, their their husbands or the men viewed it, the ones that supported them, because obviously there were men who supported it. They wouldn't have, you know, achieved so much success. Um, but the the men who a lot of the men supported it said, "This is a great hobby, but if it gets you into trouble, that's where it ends." A hobby. Like if this is a great. I'm glad that you have something to to keep you busy, or you know, to. But if it really again, if if you get in trouble. You know, this this nonsense, this silliness has to stop. And so in the end, some of them get arrested, not on purpose by any means. But again, the, it became a numbers game. They had to really grow more in numbers. And that means they were protesting perhaps um, illegally or just their, their numbers were too big. And so it's going to happen that they get a, would get arrested. And really, the only women that got arrested at the time were you know, prostitutes, uh, women of color, like, you know, wealthy women did not get arrested. <laughs> I mean, nobody wants to get arrested today, but regardless, uh, back then it was really just, I mean, you would be absolute ostracized by your society if you got arrested. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the other thing that I was going to say that I, is that the other, is Helen didn't fit in with the women she worked with. She stopped fitting in with her neighborhood. She stopped fitting in with her community because they saw her making more money. They saw her having these like high flutin ideas. All of a sudden she wasn't part of them anymore. And so she never really fit in anymore, but she finds a way to fit in. Mm -hmm. okay. Or she finds a way to remedy that, I should say. I see, I see. Um, now you clearly know a lot about the suffragist movement, but was that always the case? And as kind of a follow-up question, what led you to write about, about this particular subject? So I did not know that much about this. I researched this. So my background, what I did when I started my career is I actually spent 10 years doing research on Wall Street. <laughs> so I know research really well. I know how to research. I've written nonfiction books before. Um, so I wanted to just start learning about it. And I personally find this historical aspect of historical piece fascinating because it was people's lives. I found that I kept checking out this, which I didn't want it to write this way, but I kept checking out this encyclopedia from the library about women's history and women's suffrage. And I found it fascinating. And I love looking at the pictures. And by the way, the book really takes place in a very short time period. It's 1912 to 1919. So it's very condensed. And there's also, they start driving more cars. They start talking on the telephone. They start taking trains. Like there's also some really amazing things that happen that better their life. Um, so I don't even think that I'm an expert per se, but I found that I was really able to learn much more about it. Um, 
And then your second question. What was your second question again? Um, what led you to writing about this particular subject? The truth or, or what I'm telling people? No, I'm kidding. Um, so again, like I, it's what I love to read. So I can, I mean, really, I remember I read this book probably 10 years ago called The Orphan Train. I can't remember who wrote it. Um, Kristen, Kristen Baker Klein, maybe? The Orphan Train. I loved it. I couldn't put it down. I read this other book called The Red Ten. I read Kristen Hanna. She's a great author. I read all her books. Um, Fiona Davis, um, Paula McLean, um, Meg Wolitzer. I mean, these are best-selling authors that are in the New York Times bestsellers list. I loved their books because I felt like I was learning a little bit about historical things that happened, but it was told from the viewpoint of a woman, a strong woman, a woman who had obstacles, a woman who had challenges. I don't know. It was books that I couldn't put down and that sold a million copies. So and when I, I basically started taking a writing class for my own just journey, I do like to write, and it was a fiction writing class, and I thought, why not, like a creative writing class, and I just thought, let me write historical fiction, and it seems a little bit like, well, it's a little bit of a crutch, like, I don't have to just come up with this idea completely out of my head, um, and I've, I've always been into women's rights. I've really been into just like feminism and women's rights and equality. And so, you know, it's something that I actually, I remember, I, I will say the book first started writing out from the Susan B. Anthony time era, which is in 1850s. It wasn't a real exciting time. There wasn't a lot going on. So I, I fast forwarded it because I thought, well, this is a much more faster paced time and there's a lot more going on. And I love the hustle and bustle of New York city and the tenements and, that aspect. <laughs> um, now, as you mentioned before, this is not your first book, but it is your first fiction book. Yeah. What would mm -hmm. you say were some of the biggest challenges or the biggest uh, lessons learned during the process? So there are a few things. That there's a lot of dialogue in the book, and I wanted it to be dialogue that people today would read, but you had to make it that it wasn't but at the end of the day, I'm writing in 2020 or 21 or 2019, yet it's the dialogue is being spoken in 1912, 1915, 1917. So how do I make it sound modern without saying stuff like, okay, all right, or let me just call you on the phone. Or, <laughs> but, but I didn't want it to say like, well, I shall call you on the telephone after dinner this evening. Like that, that sounded boring too. So writing the dialogue in a voice that sounded realistic but not out of place was really challenging for me really challenging so that was and that was I've rewritten the book three times I've great teachers who've helped me great mentors so that was I would say in a fun way a real challenge for me um and the biggest thing with writing is they say show don't tell show don't tell so don't say, so then Helen went to the kitchen and she took out a pot and she made a pot of coffee you know like that's so boring. So you have to really write it in a way that you're, you're showing what she's doing as she poured herself a hot cup of coffee, like, you know, things like that. And you also have to learn how to put the reader in the scene without saying, so right away you put in a smell or, or a taste or, or a sound or what she wore, or what they wore. So right away you think, Oh, I can taste that. I can hear it. I can see that she's wearing old boots that are scuffed or he's got his jacket on and he's missing a button and he hasn't been able to sew the button on. What would you say this story adds to the overall like landscape of, you know, books and movies and articles all about the movement? So 
again, like what I've heard from readers is that people have learned so much and they had no idea. And again, there's something that happens at the end that is, people thought, said to me, you made that up, didn't you? I was like, no, 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 that's true. So that's number one. I know my, I have kids and dogs and the door keeps opening. So, <laughs> so that's the noise of the door. I apologize about that. Um, so I, I want people to have really their eyes opened. I want people to see that Helen, not just root for her, but see the obstacles that she really had to go through. Because really it was, I would say, unusual from a woman from her background, her surroundings, to have ended up in this job and have ended up being a leader. And then really in the end, what happens to her, it was very unusual. So I think to be inspired by that, because there were there was a lot going against her. There were times where she was going to quit. There were times where she could have died. There was times when her husband just said, enough's enough. You're not doing this anymore. And he had the right to do that. Um, so, and then World War I broke out and the movement actually stopped for about three years. So, because everybody was focused on the war. What happens to Helen during that time? Again, and, and this is true, luckily enough, it's not that it stopped completely. It's just that they didn't gain momentum. So right before the war, I mean, this is a part of history, which, you know, I think is interesting, maybe is, but President Wilson had gotten elected. And President Wilson was like, women, I hear you, let's get this wall passed. I'm on your side. And so the women hold a parade in Washington. And it's literally the day before his inauguration. And they think a thousand people are going to show up. A hundred thousand women show up. This is true. Yeah. And Wilson's like, okay, I got to take you women seriously. This is amazing. And he basically strings them on for a year or two. And then two years later, he declares war and he just, he can't focus on them. So he says, I can't focus on you. So, so I would say for two years, they were being strong. And then two more years, they were focused on the war. Um, so they still had the money to keep themselves going. But then when the war was in 1918, moreover, they were, um, that's when, and they, I would say, stepped it up. So they started to go petition at the White House. They were called the Silent Sentinels. And really hundreds of them would just go stand in front of the White House and petition. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they would just stand there and petition through cold weather, rain, snow, sleet. And then something happens, which I'm not going to tell you because you have to read the book. And that's really how they get the law passed. And it's pretty horrific what happened. Pretty horrific. What do you think we can learn from the overall movement that we can be applying to society today? I think just don't give up. I mean, they started fighting for this right in 1850. And then so many things that women, like in this country, you couldn't, a woman couldn't get her own credit card until the 70s. Like Switzerland didn't pass writing, you know, voting laws for women until the 70s as well. Um, don't give up. And I think, too, that class doesn't make a difference. Like here's a woman who really does not come from the class. Like those issues don't matter. And just to really, you know, if you want to do it, you'll find a way to do it and just not to be held back by things that you think will hold you back. Now, I saw on your uh, website that you had a number of um, book events related to the launch of this, which right right there is very, very notable because for like for a year and a half, we've had authors put out books, but it's all been done like virtually. You've actually been able to go to bookstores and libraries to like do these events. What was that like and what was the response? 
Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> amazing. I was in my town library last week and we had 60 people there and they capped it at that. It was myself and another author. Um, it was amazing. I was in a bookstore in Massachusetts last week. Um, I'm supposed to be in a bookstore in two weeks. You know, now obviously with Delta, things might change a little bit. Um, you know, I've done a lot of podcasts and I've done, I did two virtual bookstores. I did a virtual bookstore in DC and I did another one, um, here in Connecticut where I live. Um, but gosh, you know, being able to talk about this in person with people who, and I actually did a book club. So being able to talk about this in person with people who read the book or who want to read the book who are interested is just, it's really why I've written it. It just lifted me up <laughs> because writing is actually pretty solitary. Um, so having that interaction with someone that you've connected to has been truly amazing. All right. So, so thank you. Stephen, this talking to you about it, I could go on for another hour, but I won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, I would not be opposed to that actually, because I, I love learning about history and, you know, like I said before, I haven't heard about this thing for a very, very long time. I think I read it in like, like high school history class probably. So getting to learn all this thing, all these, all these like things about it, these aspects that I had just no idea has been a pretty cool experience. Um, in the process of researching for this book, what would you say was the biggest surprise that you learned about the movement? So there's two surprises. And again, there's something that happens at the end that is pretty horrific, which I'm not going to sell because I don't want to give it all away. So that, that I was shocked, shocked. And then two, there was, so, and again, I'm not a politician nor a historian, but there were a few things is that there were actually a lot of factions of suffragists. There was the national Alliance. There was another Alliance. There were many different groups within the suffragist movement and they didn't all get along. <laughs> so that was a little bit surprising. So learning about the different groups and, you know, frankly, that hurts them if they don't all get along. Um, there were also some states. So, for example, I think it was, um, why am I blanking on this? There were a few states out west that actually the states passed, you know, really in the late 1800s that women could vote, but it wasn't a federal law. So the individual state had it, but then the federal law didn't have it. So it was complicated. And I think that's really the federal versus state, which I think we're seeing now with, you know, COVID. It was crazy, like them asking vaccination, things like that. And so that affected this as well, because some of the states passed it, but the federal didn't. And, and again, just the complexity of it. And I think also understanding why the politicians voted against it. I mean, there were some who just wanted women to stay in the House. But there were some that were more afraid that it was going to hurt their career. Not their career in the sense that women would not vote for the things that they wanted to support. That, that hadn't crossed my mind, right? So what is next for you? Do you have another uh, book in the works? Are you still touring for, the, for this one? Yes, 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 yes. Um, yeah, I don't know. I actually am I'm, I'm, I'm writing a little bit two books. So one is I am writing another historical fiction book. Um, it it's a women's focus, but it takes place in the 60s and 70s because there was a lot more that happened there with like birth control and the, and the workplace and, and I think roles within families um, because it was a more prosperous time. So women stayed home more. They were working. They stayed home. Um, so really just talking about an independent time. Um, and so I've got kind of a fun story about that, just a, about a woman who makes choices that go the wrong way. So that's one. And then I'm writing just a contemporary novel um, based a little bit of my background in finance and, and just really some sleazy stuff that happens. Um, 
So those are two stories that I'm playing around with. And I've, I've actually written quite a few chapters on both of them. Um, I still go to my writing class every week. I love it. I absolutely love it. It's been on Zoom, unfortunately, but it's doing it. Um, and I am touring. I am absolutely touring. I will talk to whomever, wherever I can talk. <laughs> All right, all right. Well, Galia, uh, thank you so much for joining me. It's been uh, really good to learn about the book, the movement, and just kind of how this all came to be. And for the folks at home, if you want to uh, learn more, you go to galiagishonauthor.com. Link will be posted in the description for the episode. You can also find her on Twitter and Instagram under uh, Pages and More. Uh, mm -hmm. That's Pages and More. No, um, like, and sign, anything like that. Just Pages and More. And Galia, uh, before talking for the uh, the next book. Thank you so much. Thank you, Max. It's been a pleasure talking to you. All right. <laughs> Hi, this is singer Kate Eppers, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout. Okay, everyone. That brings this episode to a close. Big thanks to Galia for joining me. I really found the discussion interesting, as this is a part of American history that I only had a passing familiarity with and it was great to learn more about it. You can follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. And listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts from. If you want to get at me, it's citywidemax at yahoo.com. And as always, keep those ears open.